Good morning. For some of you, it's better than others, right? Good to see you this morning. Appreciate another opportunity to speak to you out of the Word of God today, and I I appreciate the fact that you're here and that you're uh, investing this time in your spiritual life today. If you were here last week, then you heard us talk about the fact that we're in a war, and that war is trying to destroy us, trying to destroy the church. The only way we can defeat it is if we have a heart that is focused on unity. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 that tells us, Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We learn from that text that there are three kinds of heart that we must possess in order to have unity in God's church. That is, love for one another, compassion, and humility. Those are the kinds of heart you must possess. Now, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. Your heart is vital to your physical survival. You have to have good heart health in order for you to survive in this life. You can lose a kidney. You can lose a spleen. You can lose a bladder. You can lose a lung. You can lose part of your colon. You can lose a leg. You can lose a lot of stuff in your body and still live a relatively long and healthy life. But if you lose your heart, you will die. You have to have a healthy heart in order to have a healthy life. Everybody has a spiritual heart as well. We talked about the qualities your spiritual heart needs to have in order to possess the unity that God wants in His church and in your life. We want to talk about that spiritual heart again today, but from a different angle. We're going to talk about heart dangers. We're going to talk about things that you need to avoid in order to keep your heart healthy and be able to be united as God wants you to be as His church and survive the war we're in. We actually need to keep a constant check on our heart. In fact, you go to the doctor. What does the doctor do? First thing, they send the nurse in. She listens to your heart, right? Takes your blood pressure, checks your pulse. Wants to see if your ticker's really ticking, at least the way it's supposed to. I went in for a physical last year, and my doctor said, your heart's beating too slow. I need to send you in to somebody to make sure there's not something wrong with it. They're interested in knowing about the pulse of your heart because it's indicative of your heart health. This is precisely what Jesus was talking about from a spiritual perspective in the text that is displayed on your handout. By the way, this is your handout. If you didn't get one, you need to get one. I'm a little different than some preachers. I'm not going to spoon feed you everything that's on this thing for you to fill out. You're going to have to actually listen and pay attention if you want to fill in the blanks. And in order to get coffee and donuts, you have to have a fully filled out sheet of paper. So... I will give you on the screen the main points, all right, when we get to those. But all the sub points and the blanks in between, you're going to have to listen for those. I gave you a hint. There's the first letter of each word. So there you go. The battle's half won right there. I hope you'll use this to catch up or keep up. It is, uh, it is a listening guide, and uh, hopefully it'll be something you can that'll help you focus. The reason I do listening guides is because most people... Remember this sermon about as long as you remember what you ate last Monday night at 4 o'clock. If you don't remember what that was, that's about as long as the sermon's remembered as well. But you still need the food to live, right? And so that's kind of the way we do that. 
So in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 25, we see a story. Jesus has already died. He's already been resurrected. And we sang a lot of praises about that this morning. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm glad Jesus is alive and well, because that gives you and me the hope that we'll be alive and well, even when we're done with this life on earth. He's walking down the road. He runs into a couple of disciples. One of them was named Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. And they were pretty sad. And Jesus began to have a conversation with them. And he said, what is it you're so sad about? And they basically looked at him and said, are you the only one that doesn't know what's been going on around here? And they began to tell him how that Jesus came and they thought he was the Messiah. He was going to be the promised one of God. And that they were going to be, uh, he was going to be, be the one that reigned on the earth. But now they've killed him and, he, and he's been buried. And now their women have come back and said the tomb is empty. We don't even know where his body is. And we're just upset. And that's when Jesus said in verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And began to teach them and show them what was wrong with their heart. He's talking about a slow spiritual heart. We can't have a slow spiritual heart and hope to have a united church or hope to be pleasing to God. God wants you to have a heart that's in tip-top shape. And that's what Jesus was telling them as well. And so there are a lot of known dangers to your heart. Things you're supposed to avoid. Things that you don't do if you want to have a healthy heart. You go to the doctor, even those without heart trouble are urged to cut back on salt, eat eat foods low and such, saturated fat, worry less, exercise more. Had to write all that down because I don't do most of that anyway. In the same way, there are some spiritual heart dangers that you and I must avoid if we're going to have a healthy spiritual heart and have a healthy church. And have a united church. And here's where you're going to have your first one. The first danger you need to avoid if you're going to have a heart that continues to be united in Christ is you must avoid preconceived ideas. Preconceived ideas. Got to go away. I call this the closed mind syndrome. Some folks call it the know-it-all syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? We get it in our brain what it is we think we know and that's what we know and nobody's going to change our mind. Because that's what we know. I've studied this for 40 years. I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've done it this way forever. You're not going to change my mind. I don't care who you are. I don't care what the Bible says. This is the way I believe. Now you may not be that extreme, but there's some folks that are. Let me tell you what preconceived ideas do for you. This is going to be your first next blank, okay? So preconceived ideas are dangerous because they inhibit Bible study. And they destroy unity. And when I talk about Bible study today, I'm talking about real research. Bible study and Bible reading are not the same thing. I want you to understand that. I'm all for being a daily Bible reader. And, and, and here in this congregation, we used to do that count thing, you know. Daily Bible readers raise their hand and all that. And I never raised my hand, even if I was a daily Bible reader. Because it's kind of like going in your closet and praying. I just felt like that was kind of a braggy thing, and I didn't want to do that. And so I was a conscientious objector early on. I've always been a little bit of a rebel in life, and that was one more example of that. But look, Bible reading is wonderful. And you can't study it without reading it, but just because you read it doesn't mean you studied it. Because if you don't remember what you studied or what you read, you haven't gotten anything from it. Look, I can be reading a book from the most... From Max Cato, interesting author, has a great way of saying things. I can read three or four pages and all of a sudden realize, I don't know what I just read. 
And i got to go back and read it again. And this time I read it with a study mindset. Don't, especially, this is important on familiar texts. Texts that you've got memorized. Things that you think you already know. If you have a preconceived idea, it inhibits that. Every time you open the scriptures of God to let God speak to you, you need to free your mind so that you're actually letting God speak to you. And you're actually hearing the word God wants you to have today. Because you read that scripture 10 years ago doesn't mean you even understood its ramifications on your life today. Your context changes every day. And so it's important not to have a preconceived idea. Everybody knows this story of the death angel, right? Death angel, Exodus chapter 12. You want to look me up? You can do that. Exodus chapter 12. Angel, death angel came down into Egypt. And every house that didn't have blood on the doorposts and the lentils, the firstborn died, right? Y'all remember that story? Y'all do this if you remember that. Okay, here's the problem. That's a false story. Nowhere in Exodus chapter 12 does it talk about a death angel. Did you know that? Some of you did. I didn't know that until a few years ago. And I went to Harding University. The Harding University. They didn't teach me that there. My mother-in-law set me straight one day a few years back. We were talking about death angel. There's no death angel, she said. Well, I was an educated preacher, so I got up on my high horse to show this young lady what it is she didn't know and didn't happen quite that way. It's not there. It says the Lord came into Egypt and did that. Doesn't say the death angel. That's kind of one of those things we've picked up on over the years. We've added to about like the three wise men. You understand what I'm saying? So look, simple illustration of a complex problem. When we allow a preconceived idea about what the scriptures say to rule the day. Every time you pick up that book and open the word, I want you to make sure that you're opening your mind and your heart so you can hear what God wants you to know. I've known of churches and disciples who've divided and fought over things like singing methods and whether you can give money to God by giving it to other people or whether you've got to give it straight to the church and let the church give it to other people because that might, you know, that's not, God didn't say we're supposed to give it to other people. In fact, there's some churches that argue that you can't even help the poor of the community because they're not part of the body of Jesus Christ yet, so you can't help them. And that's just so ridiculously silly and people argue and divide over stuff like that. They divide over church buildings, over pews, over carpet, over meeting times, over communion times, over order of worship, over what's in the communion, and what name to put on the sign. And all the while, believing that their way is right because they've studied it, and that's what they know is right, and it's a preconceived idea. And they don't want to get in the way of the facts. Folks, we can always find something to divide over. What we need to be looking for are things to unite through. Because we've got a greater task at hand than defending what mama and daddy and grandma did. We need to be focused on what did Jesus do and do that. And you can't do that with a preconceived idea. When we hear about new ideas and methods as disciples of Jesus Christ, look, before you brand somebody as being wrong... Before you decide that they're being a heretic, never did understand that word. It kind of it kind of puts into mind this a tick who's hairy, right? Now that's just gross. Before you brand somebody one of those, 
Make it, here's your next blanks, our responsibility to restudy whatever we think someone else is wrong about. You think someone's not right? Don't jump on their case. You go back to the Word and restudy it. Maybe they're going to show you something you never thought about ever before. Don't let that mind close. Keep it open. Rethink what it is you believe and practice and why. I know it can feel dangerous and scary because things are sacred. We don't want to we don't want to hurt somebody's sacred cow. I've decided, Danny, that we need to have some barbecue at church and barbecue a bunch of sacred cows because they're just standing in the way of progress. So we need to be careful that we're not hanging on to something just because. Whether it's a 19th or 20th century tradition, we don't have to guard that. Nor do we have to judge other people who aren't happy with that. It's a two-way street. Nor should we just throw out a tradition because we just need to try something new. There has to be a balance. The point is, restudy the Word of God. Listen to what it has to say and do that. And listen, never, ever use the Scriptures to prove what you already believe. That's using the Bible as a pretext. And when you use the Bible as a pretext, you often take it out of context. Don't study the Bible to prove what you already believe. Let the Bible tell you what you should believe. Every time you open it, keep an open mind. Wrestle with it. Listen, if there's no struggle, there'll be no strength. You've got to struggle, or you'll never know how to defend it. And then pray that Jesus will do for you as he did for the disciples in Luke 24, verse 45, a few verses down from where we were. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. When we refuse to have a preconceived idea, then he will open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Second, heart danger. We need to avoid in order to have a healthy spiritual heart and make sure that we produce unity in the church of Jesus Christ is selfish desires. We must avoid selfish desires. Selfish desires is very closely related to preconceived ideas because preconceived ideas can be used for us to get selfish gain, but it is a lot deeper than that. Selfish desires can cause spiritual heart disease because it begins to make you pursue what you want rather than what God wants. You want to defend what you think rather than what God thinks. Selfish desires are everywhere. We see it in the world. The world's driven by self. You don't believe me? Just look at, just look at Instagram. Do you really think the world needs another picture of you? <laughs> the world does not revolve around your face. It just doesn't. And some of y'all are just gorgeous. I know this. But one picture gets the job done. We already know that you're beautiful. It's not about me. Think about the home. Selfish desires in the home are the biggest problem in relationships in the home because of the elevation of self. A husband who is self-centered. Guys, listen to me. You know I'm telling you the truth here. Husbands that are self-centered always have to have their own way. He always vetoes what everybody else wants to do because, you know, after all, he is the head of the house, right? 
where they want to go, what they want to eat, what they want to spend money on. If it doesn't meet his criteria, it doesn't happen. And I'm putting my foot down on this. A wife who is self-centered grows to hate her role as a wife or a mother. And quite honestly, she feels trapped and tired of being everybody's maid. And so she goes out and she'll... Maybe she'll spend money on stuff they can't afford. and She'll go ahead and buy her husband something, too, because if she gives him a gift, he can't fuss at her for going out and buying her something, right? It's kind of reverse psychology that you ladies use. I know you do this. Or maybe she drifts off into some kind of depression. Or she gets into a situation where she tries to numb herself with alcohol or drugs or some other behavior, maybe trying to relive her glory days in high school. I know about this stuff firsthand. I'm telling you, this happens when people are focused on self. Children that are self-centered never learn the joys of sharing with others. It's always about me and me and me and true happiness is never fine. I'm telling you, selfish desires make a home a hell. An absolute hell on earth is what home becomes. Those kind of same desires, those same kind of desires in the church are also seen. And when disciples of Jesus Christ don't get along for some reason, nine times out of ten, it has nothing to do with biblical doctrine. Nine times out of ten, it is selfish desires in the church. When division exists in the church, it's because two or more sides are too selfish to give in to somebody else, to the wishes and the interests of other people. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, which, by the way, was his sweetheart church. I like to think of Philippi's relationship to Paul. It's kind of my relationship to the Dell City Church has been over the years. It's kind of my sweetheart church. It's just a place deep in your heart that just won't go away. It's just always there. But even in Paul's sweetheart church, in chapter 4, by the way, he talks about two women that couldn't get along. Euodia and Syntyche. And he said, look, ladies, quit bickering. Just get along. And before that, he precursed it with these words in Philippians chapter 2. And he said in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Folks, that's just the opposite of selfishness. We must get rid of that and look for the interest of others. That's why Jesus said we must deny ourselves. In Luke chapter 9, verse 24, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Selfish desires will give a church a spiritual coronary. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting by verse 2, that in the end times, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You know what he says to do to those people? He said, avoid these people. Because they're like a cancer. They're like a clogged artery on the major side of the heart. That will destroy a church and the unity that exists. We must kill selfish desires before selfish desires kill us. It's absolutely inessential. And so I want to challenge you today to make an all-out effort in your walk with God to discover what the desires of other disciples are and to fulfill those desires. 
Maybe it wasn't your idea. It doesn't matter. We're all on the same ship, right? You know, that's why they call it fellowship, right? Two fellows in a ship, and they're rowing. And we need to all be rowing the same way. And sometimes somebody needs a break, and somebody else jumps in, and they keep rowing. They don't change directions. They don't change gears. They don't row the opposite direction. They don't try to make the boat sink. Why? Because we're all in the same boat. We need to row together. Selfish desires need to die so we can make that happen. Then thirdly, Third spiritual danger, spiritual heart danger we need to avoid is lack of discipline. You know, to maintain a physical, a healthy physical heart, we have to discipline ourselves to eat right, to sleep right. Some of you don't have trouble sleeping right, right? <laughs> the more sleep, the merrier. I, I struggle with that. I have a hard time getting more than six hours of sleep any, any night for whatever reason. We need to eat right. We need to exercise right. We need to live right. It's also true of your spiritual heart. So how do you know if your spiritual heart has lack of discipline? If you're not getting it done, if you're not living up to par, if you're not doing your part to make your spiritual heart healthy, how do you know that? There are at least three symptoms I discovered that indicate that you have lack of discipline in your spiritual heart. And the first one is this, no personal Bible study. No personal Bible study. It goes back to what we started talking about in the beginning and that is Bible reading is not necessarily Bible study. And you need to do some personal Bible study. A few years ago, I started a personal quest um, to learn the meaning of the phrase, what would Jesus do? That was real popular back in the 90s. came out and everybody, all the teenagers were showing us adults that we were supposed to actually look like Jesus. What a novel idea. And so, what would Jesus do? Well... I began to see in my own life a lack of that. So Susie and I were on a trip somewhere, Tennessee, I think. We were walking through Gatlinburg. And uh, I told her, I said, I need something to remind me daily. What would Jesus do? My job as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to look like Jesus Christ. That's your job too. But I needed a reminder. And so we found this little ring on my, that I wear on my right hand. And, and right there on the middle of it, we had engraved WWJD. And I wear that not for any other reason except to remind me. Because when I'm at Walmart and that person that's checking me out is less than stellar. I'm, I need to know what Jesus would do. And I need to do that. So in my quest... Of learning, which by the way is an ongoing thing. I am learning every day and I am having to remind myself every day. There are days that I don't wear this. I take it off and leave it at home because I'm just in that kind of mood. And then I feel ashamed and I get home and I'm like, you know, Lord, I really still want to do what you did. In my quest to discover what Jesus would do, it occurred to me, you know, one of the first things he did growing up, he's a Jewish boy. All Jewish boys had to learn the law of God. They had to study it. They had to recite it. Now, I know that in the beginning was God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. That's John chapter 1. I know Jesus authored the Word. I know that He is the Word. But He also became a baby and had to go through all the rigors of fleshly man in order to be made pleasing to God in the flesh. He had to study the Word. 
That's why he was able to do what he did in the temple at age 12. That's why he could refute and argue with the, with the priests who had it all messed up. Because he had studied the Word. You and I, if he had to study, don't we need to study even more? Let me ask you a question. I know some of you probably aren't meat eaters. You're the vegan culture, and I respect that. So don't be offended by this illustration. If you're not a vegan and you went to a restaurant and you ordered a big, thick, fat, juicy ribeye, however you like it, medium or medium rare or medium well, and I don't know, surely there's no rare people here. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so if you, you order the steak and then you tell them, look, uh, could you do me a favor? Could you chew that sucker up before you bring it out here? I want you to cook it just right. Then I want you to chew, 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 chew that thing. Would you like that? I mean, there are some cultures that the mothers, human mothers, actually chew up the baby's food, you know, and then spit it out and, you know, shove it in the baby's mouth because they don't have any teeth. They can't chew it. That would be so... You talk about a crash diet. That would fix me right there. I mean, we could get into ship-chop shape if we could just... Oh, that's nauseating. I, I'm the guy that gets lipstick on his glass. Not because I wear lipstick, but I mean, I, you know, they come and bring you a glass that's got lipstick on it. And If there's going to be goobers in the glass, that's my glass. And if there's going to be a piece of dried food on the fork, even though it's been sterilized, that completely freaks me out. And I'm like, please, could you just bring me some clean utensils? We don't like stuff that somebody else has chewed up. Let me ask you a question. Is it any wonder that many disciples today are spiritually sick and anemic and have lost their hunger and thirst for righteousness when the only time that they get any spiritual food at all is after the preacher or the teacher has already chewed it up? You need personal Bible study. Do not rely on this time or Bible class time to be all the diet you ever get. It's important. It's imperative. A second symptom of a lack of discipline is no response to the Word. Sometimes we read the Word and we just don't respond. You know, we see it. We know what it says. We could even memorize it. We just don't do it. Remember what James said in James chapter 1, verse 22? He's pretty brutal and blunt. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Put your money where your mouth is. Let the rubber meet the road. Get out there and do something. When you hear a sermon or a teaching that speaks to a need in your life, or when you're studying and reading the word on your own and it challenges you, do you change? If you don't change, if you don't do something with it, then you've got a slow spiritual heart. And you're lacking that spiritual discipline. And so, as Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, be zealous and repent. Repent means to change. It's not something you do on the day you're baptized only. It's something you ought to be doing every day of your walk with Jesus Christ. And thirdly, third symptom, I know I'm out of time, I apologize. You know, it's the hardest thing in the world to get up here and say what you've got to say in a short period of time. Especially on the subject of unity, I could preach on unity for a year and not repeat much. There's just a lot in the Word about it. 
The third symptom we have, we can know that our, we lack discipline, is if there is no teaching of others. If you have never taught someone else why you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, it shows a lack of discipline and a slow spiritual heart. And I know we get all kinds of excuses. We talk about teaching other people. You don't understand. I'm just kind of timid. It's just I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, or I'm ignorant, or I'm busy. Well, here's number one. Timidity can never be an excuse because God's the one who asked you to do it. He's the one who made you. Are you saying he messed up? Are you saying he made a defective disciple? Jesus Christ is the one that said, go do it. Are you saying Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about? You know, the church of Dell City is never going to grow if you're relying on a preacher or if you're relying on elders to do what every single member ought to be doing. Every one of you knows somebody that I don't know. You have a relationship with somebody that is close enough that you could talk to them about their spiritual condition. The question is, are you going to do that? It's absolutely necessary. And you know, when you use that spiritual discipline, it strengthens your spiritual heart. So I want to challenge you to decide today to do better, to study better, to respond better, to teach others better, to do the very same. So let's conclude this thing today. A healthy heart is necessary for a healthy life, whether you're talking about physical life or your spiritual life. You have to have good heart health. The question is, how's your heart health? What's your heart's condition Right now today, your spiritual condition, are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? We've discussed three today, spiritual dangers we must avoid, preconceived ideas, selfish desires, and a lack of discipline. If I went to a cardiologist and he told me that if I didn't cut back on my sodium intake and start exercising an hour a day and eliminate saturated fats from my diet, that I'd be dead in six months. I'd be pretty foolish to ignore that. Would you agree with me? Don't be deceived today by the simplistic nature of this message. These are spiritual defects, dangers that we need to get rid of for any of us to fail avoiding these dangers. Taking preventative measures, measures like, like Bible study and repentance and teaching other people would also be extremely foolish. And so I want to ask you again, how's your heart health? What do you need to change? What do you need to fix? Are you going to be a doer of the Word or just a hearer today? Can we help you, encourage you, pray with you, strengthen you? You know, so many of you have been so encouraging to me. After last Sunday, you gave me a lot of encouraging words. All the compliments in the world to a preacher are like throwing gasoline on a fire, okay? He's going to be excited about that, but I'm going to tell you something. The best compliment you can pay every preacher in the world is to actually be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Can we encourage you to do that while we stand together and sing this song?